thanks so much for coming out. Um, it's it's great to, to be able to meet here and talk about just tough issues that uh, people have questions have about uh, the Bible, about Christianity, about following Jesus. Um, just so you know up front, like, we're not approaching these nights as like experts that are going to necessarily answer all your questions, but what we do want to do is try and equip you with some thoughts that we have and, and try our best to engage and give you some suggestions about how Christians have thought about these issues over the years. Um, and, and really, from a heart of, we want you to know Jesus. Like Jesus has changed my life, and um, I love helping people to get to know him more. Um, that's what we're all about as a church. Um, as the night goes through, for anyone who hasn't been along before to one of these nights, um, we have this anonymous SMS. Um, it's a phone that's wiped, so you know we're not going to know who it is that's texting in with the question. Um, if you want to just jot down that number or put it in your phone, because um, the best way to do it is as we kind of go through the night, if you think of a question, just text it right away um, while it's still fresh, because you always find yourself at the end going, ah, what was I going to say? I can't remember. Um, so get that one in and just send it through um, and later on we'll go through those questions and we'll try our best to sort of engage engage with them. Um, like I said uh, before, um, I'm going to try and keep it as brief as I can um, and then we're trying to give the back end of the night to just a Q&A uh, you know, panel discussion. Riley's going to lead that for us and we've got uh, uh, Mike who's got a PhD in history um, so here's the one where I'm gonna, we're going to be default directing questions to tonight. Um, and we've got Meg, who's very kindly volunteered to um, help out tonight as well on the panel and myself. Um, so why don't I pray for us, and then um, let's get stuck in about trusting the Bible. Lord, we thank you so much um, that you're here with us. We thank you so much that you came for us, you died on a cross and came back from the grave. Lord, we thank you for your word that you give to us. I just pray tonight, Lord, you'd help me just be clear and um, help people to understand more that your Bible is something that's worth trusting and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Rightio. Well, it's a big issue, isn't it? Trust when it comes to uh, faith, um, when it comes to Christianity, this idea of can we trust it? You know, Can we trust the Bible? Aren't there all these alternative uh, gospels, accounts of Jesus' life out there? Um, aren't there you know, errors and, and things in the Bible? Like is the Bible something that's really worth trusting. Um, I remember uh, when I lived back in Indonesia, I, um, I once flew um, with an airline in Indonesia, and I don't know if you guys are familiar with Garuda. Um, Garuda's got a really bad reputation here because uh, in 1997, they crashed at a low altitude and they killed 234 people. In 2002, um, they had an emergency landing and an engine caught fire and all these people were injured. And then 2007 was the one that's really memorable. Um, where they landed and they killed um, 21 people, but there were many people, including uh, Australians on the flight, that were seriously burnt. Many people had serious injuries after it. Um, you've got to understand that in Indonesia, uh, uh, Garuda is like the classy airline. So if you say you're flying with Garuda, even though we're afraid of it here, people go, oh man, how did you get so rich to afford to fly Garuda? Um, I was flying when I was in uh, Indonesia because the only tickets we could find when we wanted to go to the capital with Sri Rajaya Air, the cheapest airline in Indonesia, the dodgiest airline in Indonesia. And I just remember getting on that flight and just being terrified, like as the plane's like rattling, everything I'm paying attention to, just fearful that we're going to vanish out of the sky. And I guess the point is that trust really matters. You know, trust is important. And particularly it's important when it comes to the Bible. 
uh, it's really important when it comes to the Bible because it affects your relationship with God. If you can't trust the Bible, um, it makes it impossible to trust the character of God as we read it in the Bible. And therefore, it's really important, isn't it, that we can trust. And so we're going to be looking at three points. I'm going to spend most of the time uh, looking at our first point historically, but I also want to address this issue of trusting the Bible culturally and trusting it personally, just briefly. Um, I want to read you this quote. The dates of his life are still controversial, but no biography is written for several hundred years after the life had ended. And the available sources for such information are such a mixture of history and legend as to prove the despair of all historians. As many as four different versions are sometimes given of one event, and as others appear in widely different sequences. Only by piecing together a score of passages from various parts of the existing canon does a consistent story appear. I want to say that I agree like 100% with that statement. Um, and the reason is because it's not about the Bible. It's actually about uh, the Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama. Um, and it's from a work by uh, actual a Buddhist uh, writer called Christmas Humphrey and in his book, The Life of the Buddha. And it's not a cheap shot at um, Buddhism at all. Um, Humphrey himself says that Historicity, that's being historical, isn't really important because the Buddha is of symbolic significance. Um, history doesn't really matter. But when it comes to Christianity, it comes to Christian faith, uh, history really matters because the Bible makes claims about things that are rooted in time and space events of history. History is really important. And in that sense, theoretically, Christianity is disprovable. It's disprovable because its claims are based in history. So really my aim tonight is to, to show you that the Bible is trustworthy, that it's something that you can trust. Um, some people might say to you, look, prove to me, prove to me that the Bible has not been altered. Um, and I want to say that's, that's unreasonable. We, we, we can't give you proof. Um, that's like saying, someone standing up and saying, or to give you an example, um, sometimes the claims people make are just not testable in that way. Um, that's like saying for an illustration, if, if someone said to you, I just put to you um, that every time you close your eyes and when no one's looking, there's a giant Winnie the Pooh that appears in the room. And you, you might say, that's crazy. Um, and I say, no, prove me I'm wrong. Prove to me I'm wrong. And you say, well, I can't really prove that you're wrong. But I guess what I'm saying, the thing about that claim is that it's unreasonable. Like, who would believe that that could be possibly true? It's just crazy. It's irrational. And so I guess what I want to say, what I'm trying to say is that what we're aiming to do tonight is to, not to give you proof in the sense of um, without being questionable, irrefutable proof. What we're trying to demonstrate, what I'm hoping to demonstrate tonight is it's reasonable. It's reasonable to believe that the Bible is trustworthy, that, that it's something that you can put your faith in and, and trust it. And I want to do that by starting off by talking about the Bible historically, um, trusting that it is actually based in history. And the first objection that uh, people normally come up with is, uh, is that the stories are made up, that it's just all a fiction. People take the Gospels and they say, you know, what you're reading, it's just not based in reality. It's just not history. And yet, uh, it's in fact, it's quite a popular opinion. In fact, Jesus... Um, and, and, and created legends. He was just a good man. He was a teacher that lived, but he wasn't really, he wasn't really uh, who he claimed to be. The, 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 the accounts that we read 
in the Bible are just legends. They're not even pretending to be history. I think this has been quite popularised by uh, Dan Brown's The Da da Vinci Code. Um, Jesus was, he points, the misunderstood lover of Mary Magdalene. Um, The Gnostic Gospels, in fact, uh, contain evidence about the true life of Jesus, about his true life. It was a case of the church covering up uh, the truth, the true gospel, the true life of Jesus. Um, we're going to see, I hope that we're going to see tonight that not only do the Gnostic Gospels not contain uh, real references to the true story of Jesus, as uh, Dan Brown would have us believe, but in fact they're evidence of what it looks like when you try to actually make up history, when you try to, many years after the event, make up history. Um, so were the Gospels simply made up or are they historically reliable documents, things that we can historically trust? Well, the first thing I want to look at is uh, external evidence for the life of Jesus. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this question, um, the external evidence of the uh, life of Jesus. Um, There's a list of things that that you can read up on this. Basically, the question that um, I'm trying to address is, what can we know about the life of Jesus if we didn't even have the New Testaments at all? What could you know from other historical writers that weren't Christian, that were writing in the period, that uh, were witnesses or involved in history um, at the time, historical writers? What do they compile? What evidence is there outside of the Bible for the life of Jesus? Uh, This guy here, John Dixon, actually puts it together in this book that was written around the time that the Da Vinci Code was written. It's called The Christ Files. Uh, John Dixon was an associate professor of history at Macquarie University. Um, He's also a Christian, but he's basically in this book just putting together a a list of documents, and it's quite substantial, um, historical writers that uh, talk about um, Jesus. And there's a big list of them from people like uh, Tacitus to Pliny the Younger to Josephus, um, Thallus, Suetonius, there's a whole bunch of guys. So we've actually got a couple of copies of this book, so if you're interested in reading uh, what... Uh, people have written about this. Um, this is a great book and I recommend it. You can have it for free. We're aiming to try and give away these um, things to people who are genuinely interested in finding out more. Um, but a big source of uh, evidence for the Bible being, or the New Testament specifically, being history, and I guess the New Testament is what we want to focus on tonight. You can look at so many different things, but I guess the key thing that we want to examine is Jesus himself. Jesus is the heart of what it means to be a Christian. And so I think if you understand and are convinced that Jesus is a man of history, then I think the rest kind of falls into place. Um, And the first uh, piece of evidence I want to go into in in a bit more detail is the genre of writing itself. Um, The genre of writing. So I want to do that to to begin to look at the the type of writing it is. You know, we have poetry and prose and all different things, history. Um, I want to read from the beginning of Luke's Gospel, um, which I've got up on the screen. And I might just read it straight from there. Um, this one down might be a bit easier if I read with you. Um, Inasmuch as many, Luke begins in his gospel, have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that we have been taught. Luke, who we learn is a physician, um, writes his gospel account and begins his gospel, his, his life story, his biography, if you like, of Jesus with this uh, opening paragraph. In this paragraph, he tells us a few things. He says that there's actually been a few gospel accounts, um, things that have been written about Jesus, things that have been taught by people that are ministering, people that were eyewitnesses 
to the life of Jesus. And so it's just as there are many of these uh, going around um, at this time, which is shortly after the death of Jesus that, that Luke is writing, um, I've sought to gather these eyewitness testimonies and put them together into an orderly account for you, Theophilus. And what's the point of this? That you might have certainty concerning the things that are being taught. He, he wants this wealthy benefactor, Theophilus, to know with certainty that the things that he's been taught about Jesus are trustworthy and true. And so he puts together this historical account, this man of medicine, um, for him to, to read. And so up front, the, the Gospels claim to be, uh, they claim to be, uh, to be history. You might think, why is that significant? That's not really that important, right? Lots of things. We get you know, historical fiction, right? People write about that all the time. C.S. Lewis, you might know him, he writes the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, in this uh, uh, passage, uh, this uh, quote from C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis was also a professor of uh, medieval literature. And um, so his background is actually in studying different genres. And he writes in that, uh, that uh, quote you have up on the screen, I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends and myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know that none of them are like this. Of this gospel text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage, that is reporting, historical reporting, or else some unknown ancient writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern, novelistic, realistic narrative. What C.S. Lewis is saying here is this you know, historical fiction that we read didn't exist for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, thousands of years after the time of Jesus. And so either what we read in this historical account that we just read at the start of Luke's Gospel is history, or someone is preempted by well over a thousand years this modern way of writing. And I guess what he's trying to say is um, what we read at, at least is claiming to be history in the Gospels. It's explicitly listed um, as a historical account, but um, ancient fiction or realistic fiction that we know wouldn't exist for another 1,700 years. Um, moreover, what we read in the Gospel in this genre is, um, is, also, uh, is also the content itself. The, the, the type of writing that we see. Um, the type of things that we read in the gospel are things that you just wouldn't make up um, if you were trying to uh, write uh, or make up uh, uh, a historical account. It's brutally honest, the gospels, when we read it. It contains things that just are just ludicrous for someone that would be looking to create a narrative. It's brutally honest. Uh, for instance, one of the things that um, you'll find in the, the Gospels, if you read them, is that many of the witnesses in Luke's Gospel are women. Now, in the first century, the testimony of a woman was inadmissible. You couldn't have a woman's testimony. It wasn't valued. It wasn't uh, considered reliable. And for someone to include women's testimonies as part of the evidence for Jesus' life and death is just something you wouldn't make up at the time. Peter, the Apostle Peter, who was... Uh, later go on to be like a real pillar of the church, repeatedly just messes up all the time. He, he, he tells Jesus he shouldn't die, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Uh, he says he's not going to betray Jesus, and then three times he does, um, and just flees. He's, he's shown to be a wimp. Jesus himself, his life, I mean, we're so familiar with the story of Jesus' life, and yet we don't realize it's so unbelievable for the time. Uh, Jesus um, has all these scenes where he's in conflict and crisis, 
He says, pass this cup from me as he prays in the garden to his father. The fact that he's crucified, a brutal ancient form of death that was viewed as shameful, as disastrous, as a defeat, as the worst possible death, something that the Romans didn't even want to talk about. The fact that he's mocked and betrayed by everyone. And when Jesus cries on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, for the time, it's a story we're so familiar with, yet it's something you would just never make up as a, as a, uh, as a, a fiction. But it's not only that. It's not only the genre of writing. It's also the time of writing. And that is that the Gospels were written early. Um, they used, uh, frequently quoted the Gospels, that is the uh, biographies of Jesus' life, are frequently quoted in the early church fathers um, who lived from, or the particular ones I want to reference, uh, 90 to 160 AD. So that's uh, 60 to 100 years after Jesus uh, died on the cross. Includes references to the destruction of, te- of the temple, so we can we can date uh, several of the uh, gospels back to um, even the earliest period. F. F. Bruce, who was a famous uh, theologian and historian at uh, Princeton University, writes in his book *The New Testament Documents: Are They Reliable?*. He writes that most of the New Testament was written in the period between AD 60 and 80. That's 30 to 50 years after Jesus' death. They were written early. They are early written documents. And you might think, well, 30 to 50 years seems like a long time. I'll tell you what, if you talk to my grandparents about their wedding day, which was, I think they're up to 60, their 60th anniversary, they will be able to recount to you with perfect clarity about everything that happened on the day of their wedding. They, the, the memories for them are so fresh, are so crystal clear. If you talk to someone who was a survivor of... World War II or Vietnam that happened in the 70s, people will be able to recount with real clarity about the things that happened in that time. We wouldn't consider that to be a long period of time, in fact. That's very recent. And and so it's with great certainty we can say that accounts written so soon after Jesus' death are reliable. Um, Every, or in fact, the early date means that the documents were also written in the, in, within the lifetime of people that were eyewitnesses. You know, if you tried today to, to make up an account of World War II that was a fiction, you'd have a big problem because there's people that are still alive that live through it. They'd be able to say, hey, mate, that's not what happened. You know, that's not at all what happened. You know, I was there. And Paul openly in Acts 26 says this to uh, King Agrippa when he's there. You know, he says the events around Jesus' life, you were there. You know, ask and see for yourself. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-7, he appeals um, to all the 500 eyewitnesses that support his testimony. He says, ask these guys, many of them are still alive, ask them yourself about the things I'm talking to you about now. He appeals to people, if they don't believe him, to go and test it with eyewitnesses. The difference between this is takes us full circle back to the Gnostic Gospels. They're written late. Um, one of the earliest ones, which is often quoted in Dan Brown's account, the Gospel uh, according to Thomas... <laughs> is probably written no earlier than 175 AD. And that's, that's a generous estimate. That's 150 years after the events. And this is one of the reasons why, in terms of historical study, no one actually takes the Gnostic Gospels seriously. And I'm going to talk a bit more about that uh, in the coming section. So not only the, the time of writing, not only the genre of writing, um, not even the fact that they, they claim to be historical writing, but another thing to consider is the actual content of the writing. One thing that um, I've, I've brought to my attention from uh, a New Testament scholar called uh, Richard Borkham, a historian called Richard Borkham, he looks at 
um, the names of people in the first century AD. Now, you see, names you might not think is a very big deal, but um, actually names are kind of hard to make up because names change according to the period of time, according to the place. This is a list of the top six Jewish male names um, in Palestine in the first century AD. And what we're going to see is they line up really well with what we read in the New Testament. Simon, Joseph, Eliezer, or Lazarus, Judah, John, um, Judah or Judas, John, and Joshua, or Jesus. Now, if you move uh, just in the same period across to Greco-Roman Egypt, the same time, but a different place, the list of names is completely different. Lazarus becomes the first name, and then a whole range of different names on list, um, as you see as you go down. Now, if you change the time period, and you go to a different period of time, the list of names changes again. Um, names are very difficult things to make up. Now, when we look at the top six Jewish names in the New Testament, we see that the list nearly perfectly matches the list of names for the period. Simon is the most frequent name in the New Testament. It occurs nine times. Um, we have all these uh, different names of people that, that come up. The way that, and what you see as you read uh, the New Testament, because Simon is such a common name, you have so many different qualifiers at the end to tell you which Simon I'm talking about because there's so many of them. Simon the Tanner, Simon the Apostle, Simon Peter, Simon the Zealot, Simon the brother of Jesus, Simon Barjona, Simon the Leper, Simon of Cyrene, Simon the Magician, Simon the Tanner. Equally John, John the Baptist, John the disciple Jesus loved, on and on. The reason why they had to use these names is because there's so many people called John. It's a very popular name of the period. It's the fourth most popular name. Now, um, equally Mary is, uh, they say, or estimates say that in the first century, almost 29% of women were known by Mary. In the same uh, time, in the same way, you see so many different Marys in the New Testament as you read it. You know, Mary, uh, Mary, uh, what, what have we got? A whole bunch. Mary uh, uh, Magdala, Mary, uh, heaps of them. Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary, and on and on and on. Mary is such a common name. We use these qualifiers because so many people are called Mary. Now, how could you account for this if it was written later? You know, the only way we'd be able to form these lists of names in the period is through historical information that uh, records that sort of of huge amounts of uh, writings from the period. It's information that's really difficult to forge. Similarly, if you go to the Gnostic Gospels, they just get the names completely wrong. Um, in fact, they only get two names um, for the period correct. Um, if you're trying to write an account of Jesus' life well after he lived, what would you do? You go to the biggest library you can find, you look up uh, the major city, um, the city that you're looking at, and you, you find um, just some books about the, the big major capitals, and that's what we get. The names they get right are Jerusalem, and Nazareth, which they actually think is Jesus' middle name. So they kind of half get that one right. All the rest of the names don't, don't match the period. Um, equally, in addition for names, personal names, um, there's things like small towns like Capernaum and Nazareth and Beth Bethany and Cyrene and Cana. Details of city, the Skull Hill, the Mount of Olives, the Pool with the Five Colonnades, which until recently people, uh, by the Sheep's Gate, which until recently people thought didn't exist, but it was uncovered, I think about 30 years ago, in an archaeological dig in Jerusalem. These are specific names of places 
of someone who's intimately familiar with the, uh, the location of Jerusalem at the period of time. It's information that is really difficult to make up. And for that reason, John Dixon, whose book I recommended, um, says this, he says this, he says, I realize it does not make for a good headline, but in the ongoing study of Jesus, the texts at the center of historical research are still the New Testament Gospels. They are the earliest, most plentiful, and most reliable accounts of Jesus' life available to us. The Gnostic Gospels, on the other hand, are fascinating, but virtually worthless in the search for the man who lived a century or two before. He goes on, he says, In fact, it is no exaggeration to say that historians, no matter what their persuasion, what their beliefs are, universally regard the New Testament writings as the earliest, most plentiful, and most reliable sources of information about the Jesus of history. People that are serious about studying the history of Jesus' life, they look at the New Testament um, for their most uh, reliable source of information about the Jesus of history. So the stories of the Bible uh, were not made up, but are deeply, I think in a really deep way, grounded in history. Well, the Bible is corrupted. Um, that's the next objection that people say. You know, there's been mistakes in the trans, you know, uh, transcribing of it down through the ages, and so we can't trust uh, the Bible that we read. It's been altered. And I think in part I've dealt with that with the previous point. Uh, but one thing I do want to talk about is uh, manuscript evidence that we have. I'm going to put a picture up on the screen, and that's of uh, Julius Caesar. Um, this man, Julius Caesar, we're all uh, familiar with him. Uh, but most, what you might not know is most of what we know about Julius Caesar is from uh, a couple of uh, sources. That's three sources. Caesar's The Gallic War and two major historical works by a guy called Tacitus, his histories and his annals. And there's roughly ten manuscripts of Caesar's The Gallic War. The oldest is about 900 years after Caesar wrote it. Both the copies of Tacitus's work depend on two manuscripts, one from the 9th century and one from the 11th century. Yet no serious scholar really doubts their historical reliability. Now, when we come to the New Testament, we have about 5,800 Greek manuscripts and 10,000 Latin manuscripts and many others. And so I tried to put it into a little table form for you to see to compare, but I couldn't really get the other ones to turn up. But I think you see kind of the point. There's such an abundance of uh, manuscripts about the New Testament, particularly the Gospels. Now, it's not just about the number of manuscripts, because actually you can have manuscripts that are not good quality at all, that are um, written later and that are really dodgy, because it's just an event of history. You know, sometimes manuscripts you find are bits of a, a verse that are written as someone's personal devotion, a wealthy person who's just writing a devotion. Sometimes there's someone who's a scribe who's deliberately trying to record a copy, but sometimes they're a dodgy scribe. They don't do a very good manuscript. So it doesn't necessarily show you the quality. But the thing is, when it comes to the New Testament, the quality that we have is exceptionally good. This is the oldest piece of the Bible, uh, the New Testament, sorry, Gospels that we have. It's called Papyrus 52. It's written on Papyrus and it dates to 125 AD. So that is about 90 years after Jesus died. And that is probably, depending on how you date, about 40 to 50 years after the original was written. So this is extremely, extremely, extremely old. Um, this is another uh, famous one. This is uh, uh, a monastery up on top of Mount Sinai where they found this one here which is uh, called uh, Codex Sinaiticus which is one of the oldest uh, fuller copies of 
the New Testament that we have. And it dates to about 330 to 360 AD. So about uh, 300 years roughly after the originals were written. We have so many more manuscripts, but it's not just that we have manuscripts, manuscripts that are older and closer to the original. Now, this slide I want to show up here has a couple of uh, funny things in it. This is the King James Version, which was written in 1611, which was largely based on uh, this guy's uh, full work of the Greek uh, New Testament by uh, this guy called Erasmus, a famous uh, scholar. And he based uh, his uh, Codex Receptus, he called it, um, based on seven manuscripts that he found, seven uh, manuscripts that he had. Well, in the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years that have followed, uh, we now have thousands and thousands more manuscripts, more older manuscripts, more reliable manuscripts than what Erasmus had. And yet if you compare the King James Version of the Bible to the uh, version that we use today in our church, we use the ESV, you'll find that there's very little differences between them. Um, And that is because of the quality of the uh, manuscripts that we have. Um, There are two passages, two well-known passages in the Bible um, that uh, uh, most Bibles will have them bracketed that say that they don't, uh, not seen in the earliest manuscripts. Um, I think we can talk about that a bit more in the uh, in the Q and A session, except to say that uh, this is not a new issue. People have suspected that these are not original to the New Testament for hundreds and hundreds of years. In fact, I've got a quote up there by a guy called uh, John Calvin, who writes about 500 years ago um, about these passages, saying, "Hey guys, you know what? Um, even based on the very few manuscripts he had, I." Don't think these are original. They're not appearing in their uh, early church fathers' works at all. The language is different. But don't freak out. There's nothing new in here. It all seems pretty kosher. So, um, you know, I wouldn't treat it as scripture, but it's probably useful to read and have. Um, But you can ask more questions later on. So, can you trust the Bible historically? Absolutely. The Bible is trustworthy. It's uh, worthy of your trust historically. I want to finish quickly with two last points, and that is that you can trust the Bible culturally and you can trust the Bible personally. By trusting the Bible culturally, um, what I'm trying to get at there is um, that we all take a cultural lens to looking at questions of the Bible. They're all things that are in our culture, uh, uh, just really controversial and unpopular and and difficult. Um, But it was the same in Jesus' day. You know, in Jesus' day, um, after Jesus had died and rose again, on the road to um, uh, uh, some of these disciples are travelling uh, along a road, and Jesus appears to them, and um, they're having this conversation amongst themselves, and and the disciples are talking amongst themselves, and Jesus is like, "What are you talking about?" And they don't recognise it's Jesus, and they say, "How can you not know what's just happened in Jerusalem?" Um, that this man, and he's like, oh, tell me about it, I don't, I don't know about it. And he's like, this you know, guy who came, we thought he was the Messiah, and he wasn't who he said he was, or who we thought him to be, and he's been killed, and they shamefully treated him, and we're just perplexed about what to do. You know, this is just a, a really uh, terrible situation. And Jesus opens up the Bible and, and shows them how it all taught, uh, how Jesus must come and die and, and suffer, and then three days later rise from the dead. Um, and the reason is that these disciples hadn't understood who Jesus was um, is because they had their cultural blinkers on. Um, they thought Jesus was going to be this big king who's going to come and kick the Romans' butts 
and um, and just free them from their like physical oppressors. That's who they thought the Messiah, the promised king, was going to be. And Jesus wasn't that. And so they'd misunderstood because of their cultural blinkers on. And I say to you, if you've rejected the Bible and said, you know what, I don't think I can trust this. I don't think I can trust Jesus. I don't think it's true. I just want to put to you, like maybe, maybe you haven't understood culturally who the Jesus is. Maybe your cultural blinkers have uh, prevented you from understanding. You know, our culture loves generosity. It loves turn the other cheek. It loves forgiveness. But it hates sexual morality. Hates it. It thinks it's so narrow and stingy. But if you go to the Middle East, it's the reverse. People love sexual morality and they hate the concept of generosity, uh, not generosity, but forgiveness and turning the other cheek. That to them is repellent. Like people deserve to be punished. And I would say, like, you know, who are we to say our cultural perspective is more significant than theirs, worth more than theirs? Now, I think, you know what, if the Bible's real and it's not just been made up by people, I think if there's genuinely a, a sovereign God who's sovereign and Lord over everything, so at times, um, and it's just not a work of fiction, at times we should, like, totally disagree with him. And his view should be different from us. You know, if at every point we resonate with what the Bible teaches, I would begin to believe that maybe we just made it up. Uh, we're talking about a sovereign being who rules the world. And so I'd say, don't let your cultural blinkers prevent you from getting to know the Jesus of the Bible. You can trust the Bible. Begin by looking at who Jesus is and getting to know him and examining open-mindedly him for yourself. Well, I say you can trust the Bible culturally, but more than that, you can trust it personally. You know, uh, Richard Dawkins, uh, in his book, The God Delusion, says, faith is the great cop-out. The great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate the evidence. Faith is belief in spite of, sometimes because of, the lack of evidence. And I totally agree. That sort of faith is an absolute cop-out. But faith in spite of the evidence is not the faith of the Bible. Faith of the Bible is faith in light of the evidence. It's looking at the evidence, examining the facts, and coming to the conclusion that this is something that I need to respond to. A faith that is grounded in history. And I just want to say, um, we've been talking a lot about you know, history, past, and evidence in the past, or things in the past, but there's not just the past that uh, is something that you should consider when it comes to examining Jesus. It's also the present. It's what Jesus is doing in the lives of people to this day. And you know, my story is one of many stories um, of people that have had their lives changed by Jesus. Now, I was a guy who was just really uh, obsessed with myself and really anxious and fearful of what people thought about me. I, I used to just crave people's acceptance. Um, and since coming to know Jesus, you know, in my late teens, you know, Jesus changed my life. Um, I have this new peace in knowing Him and in following Him. And so I'd say if you're someone who's uh, genuinely seeking on this question, it's an issue for you. Can I trust the Bible? Not only get to know the Jesus of history, but get to know the people that follow him. Get to know and hear the lives of the way in which he is working in people's lives. Well, that's all from me. Um, you can trust the Bible, both um, the Bible, both in terms of history, in terms of culture, and in terms of personally. Um, I want us to break now for about uh, 15, 20 minutes. Take a good amount of time. And we're going to come back here, um, get your questions ready, and we're going to get the panel with some couches, get them all you know, softened up and ready for you, uh, get them relaxed and off guard. And, uh, and so prepare your questions, think about things that you can be texting in, and we'll get stuck into um, answering your questions in about 10, 15 minutes.